Our gospel reading this morning comes from the 13th chapter of Mark, the beginning of the chapter. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, as you know, we raised five kids, but they weren't all at home about the same time. Back in the day when we had three or four children at home at a time, we often took road trips. Once, I recall, we were living on the east side of Atlanta and decided to go through Birmingham, Alabama toward a Civil War battlefield in Tennessee. But I miscalculated the distance, so we stopped in Birmingham and we had a hamburger and we were all tired by the end of the meal. We were so tired that we turned around and we drove home. It became, it became known in family legend as the time we drove to Alabama for a hamburger. <laughs> Other times, we'd just go exploring. We'd try to find a new place like a state park or just a place where we'd heard there might be a pretty place. I remember us driving around trying to figure out on the map where to go yeah, this was before GPS systems back in the early 90s. We looked at the map. We turned off the four-lane. We drove down a two-lane. We made a couple of turnoffs. Then we went down a small two-lane road. became a one-lane road. More and more, it became a gravel road. Then we saw a sign pointing to the little town we wanted to get to. We were excited because we knew we were getting close and we kept driving until we came to a bridge. Well, not quite. There was no bridge, only a bridge out sign and a sudden drop off beyond it. We could see the road we wanted to travel on on the other side of the river, but that didn't do us any good. You see, we needed a guide because the road map no longer worked well. And sometimes, you know, you can't get to where you want to go to without a guide. Sometimes the road ends before you think the road is going to end. Well, early in the last week of his life on earth before he was executed on the cross, Jesus and his disciples got into a series of debates with Pharisees and Sadducees, the two principal groups of Jewish leaders of the time. They debated paying taxes, they debated how marriage would work during the resurrection, what the greatest commandment was, 
and how the Messiah, the Savior, could possibly be the son of David if David called him Lord. Jesus then warned his disciples about the teachers of the law and how they put on a great show for prestige and money and then complimented the faith of a widow who put two pennies into the temple treasury, all that she had. And then they left the temple complex, a huge 35-acre area. One of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, look at the mass of stones. What magnificent buildings we have here. And Jesus replied, You see those great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And a few minutes later, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, where they could clearly look down upon the temple complex, which undoubtedly glittered and sparkled in the setting sun because of all the gold and gems and limestone blocks that were used in its construction. Peter, James, John, and Andrew kind of crept up to him. They said to him quietly, When's all this going to happen? What will be the sign that all these things you've said are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus told them that, that it's going to be a while. He said, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will claim to be me and will deceive many. Don't be alarmed when you hear of war and rumors of war. Such things must happen, but the end's still to come. Nation's going to rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Now, you know that you hear people talk about wars and rumors of war but they usually use that in exactly the opposite sense to the way Jesus intended. People today use it to say, we must be getting near the end because there's wars and rumors of war. But if you look at what Jesus said, he was saying, ah, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, but that's not the end yet. It's still ways off after that. Jesus that day spoke for several more minutes and he reminded them that they were going to be persecuted. But they still had to be his witnesses. Speaking to governors and kings, the gospel must be preached to all nations. But don't worry when you are arrested. Just let the Holy Spirit speak, Jesus told us. But when they saw a sight from Daniel's prophecies, the abomination that causes desolation. Boy, that's clear, isn't it? But when they, you see that standing where it does not belong, then all those in Judea should flee to the mountains quickly, immediately, like right now, because a bad time was going to follow. But then after many false sightings, Jesus would be seen coming in the clouds with great power and glory. But he says only the Father knows when. Not even the angels in heaven, nor even the Son, Jesus himself, but only the Father. So Jesus said, stay alert. And verse 30 is particularly intriguing. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And so looking back from the 21st century, back to the 1st century, we know certain things did happen. First of all, we know that Jesus was giving this speech in the year 33 or 34 A.D. And secondly, we know that about 30 years later, Within the lifetime of many of the disciples, 
in A.D. 64, a large Jewish revolt began against Roman rule. And the war continued until August of the year 70 when the Romans broke down the gates of Jerusalem and they entered the city and then they spent several months destroying the city. And most particularly, they destroyed the temple of God. They cut down all the blocks. They tore them loose from each other and they just toppled everything. Third, we know that about 60 years after that, in 134, after several smaller revolts, the Romans had had enough of Jewish revolts. And they kicked the Jews out of Jerusalem. They later allowed them to return for a single day each year to mourn at what remained, which was the western retaining wall that supported the compound, that wall that we see today as the western wall. It's all that remains of the whole temple complex, that retaining wall. One group of Jews, as they left town, they moved to Eastern Europe and Russia by way of Babylon and Persia and Kazakhstan. We call them the Ashkenazi Jews. While another group moved to Egypt and eventually across North Africa to Spain and France and England. And these were the Sephardim Jews. Fourth, Jews did slowly return to Jerusalem over the centuries, but not in great numbers until the late 1890s. And then in increasing numbers after World War I and again after World War II, and another surge came after the fall of the Soviet Union. And of course the modern state of Israel retook Jerusalem and declared it to be the capital during the 1967 Six-Day War. At the time of Jesus... There were about 6 million Jews in the world, almost all of whom lived in the Roman Empire. About half of them lived in the Holy Land, and the other half were dispersed throughout the empire. Since the empire's total population was about 100 million people, about a sixteenth of the population was Jewish, a substantial minority. Today that's grown to about 18 million Jews worldwide. About 6 million live in the Holy Land. About 6 million live in the United States, and about 6 million are scattered throughout the world. And, of course, there were another 6 million who died during World War II in the work camps and the prisons and the extermination camps in German-occupied territory. The Jews have been through an awful lot since 64 A.D. when they revolted against, against the Roman occupation and 70 when the temple was destroyed. You know, in times of stress, stress, fear, upset in the world, many Christians look to the prophecies with an attempt to determine whether the end is near. In fact, about 20, 30 years ago, an entire series of fictional books, the Left Behind series, was written, which attempted to make sense of the various prophecies in the Bible which are mainly located in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation as well as 2 Thessalonians and this particular section of Mark and the equivalent sections of Matthew and Luke. And so a particular view of the end times has come to dominate popular Christianity today in America because of these books and the Schofield Bible from which many of them date and 
the pronouncements of Herbert W. Armstrong, who was a Sunday morning televangelist from the 1960s and 70s. You may remember him. In this view, I call it the standard view, the return of Christ is going to be signified by a series of events which leads up to the rapture when all the dead and living Christians will meet Jesus in the air. And then a series of terrible events we call the tribulation will happen over the next seven years in two periods of three and a half years during which the world is basically destroyed. And non-believers may or may not have a chance to repent and be saved. There's disagreement on that. An antichrist appears who's an evil man opposed to Christ. And after this, the old heaven and the old earth pass away, and a new heaven and a new earth appeared with new Jerusalem descending in Revelation 21. It's a massive city, 1,500 miles wide by 1,500 miles long by 1,500 miles high. In New Jerusalem, there's no temple. No temple of God, none's needed. For God the Father and Jesus the Son walk with us. The tree of life is there, bearing fruit twelve times a year, and the living water flows from the throne of God. Life is good, and life is eternal, and we're ruled by the wisest king of the universe, which is what makes New Jerusalem such a special place. Unfortunately, while New Jerusalem is pretty clearly promised, the standard model of how we get there may or may not be true. You know, the end's been predicted many times. Since 1901, there have been 81 predictions of the end of the world. Most of them have been from Americans. By this preacher or that preacher, it began back in the 1800s. In 1918, the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, began to say that millions now living will never die as they expected the return to occur in the mid-1920s. And other preachers have given countdowns to the end. And as my son Andy is fond of saying, despite his young age of 24, the world has supposedly ended at least five times in his life alone. You see, we don't know how to interpret all these ideas about end times. And by the way, there are six more predictions of the end of the world between now and 2088. Example is on the interpretation. It appears likely that the destruction Jesus talked about in Mark's gospel was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. There are many historical figures, though, who have been identified as the Antichrist, like the Roman Emperor Nero, who ruled at the time the Jewish revolt began in 64. Then Attila the Hun, who sacked Rome a couple centuries later. Martin Luther, who began the Protestant Reformation, was seen as Antichrist by many Catholics at the time. Napoleon Bonaparte, who led Germany during World War... I'm sorry, Napoleon Bonaparte, who temporarily conquered much of Europe around 1800, he was seen as Antichrist, particularly by the British. Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany in World War I, he was seen as Antichrist. And, of course, Adolf Hitler, who led... Germany during World War II was widely seen as Antichrist. And then Stalin, the leader of Russia, during and after World War II. And even Ronald Wilson Reagan, our president, who happened to have six letters in each of his names, and this was tied to 666 by some people. 
We don't know who Antichrist is, do we? My point is simple. Only God the Father knows the time schedule for the end. Not even Jesus or any of the disciples. This is something that Jesus himself has told us. Even he doesn't know when the end is coming. And so I think that anyone who claims to know the schedule, particularly in detail, anyone who knows the schedule for the end of the world, they're just trying to sell books and videos. So what should a person do? It's good to break away from the useless study of things that we've been told by God that we cannot understand. And instead, study those things of God that we can understand. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, the writer tells us a list of these things. He talks about how Jesus is so different from all the Old Testament priests. He says, day by day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. He's referring to the temple priests of his time. When the priests performed sacrifices to pay the penalties for sins, which still didn't take away those sins, merely paying the fines, merely apologizing for the sins. It says, but when this priest, meaning Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who have repented of our sins and been made clean by baptism, are made perfect by the sacrifice of Jesus. As far as God is concerned, our sins are taken away forever. And the writer continues, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I'll put laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. There's no longer any need to sacrifice animals and grain at the temple as the Old Testament asks. For God the Father has forgiven us and no longer remembers our sins and lawful acts. There's no need for us to do other sacrifices for sins. No need to flail at ourselves. Through the Holy Spirit, now God has put the laws in our hearts and written them on our minds. We're no longer bound to laws that were engraved on tablets and written on scrolls, but through the Holy Spirit, we can understand what God's law is for this specific occasion, rather than worry about interpreting between conflicting laws that were engraved permanently and could not take into account changing situations. And the writer says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body. In the great temple of God, there was a most holy place where only the high priest could visit, and he was only allowed to visit once a year. They tied a rope to his ankle, because if he did something wrong, they would have to drag his dead body out. 
This most holy place was separated from the world by a special curtain. And yet, because of the self-sacrifice of Jesus, the blood of Jesus has opened a way for us to approach God in this most holy place. The Gospels tell us that upon the death of Jesus, there was a great earthquake, and the curtain was ripped in the temple from the top to the bottom. God ripped the, the curtain and opened up access to him for us. The writer of Hebrews continues, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, meaning Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Through baptism, we're now clean enough to approach God following Jesus Christ who presides over the house of God today. Have you considered how much misery we have brought into our lives because of our guilty conscience about all that we've done wrong? Trust in God and Jesus. They have said that they forgive our sins and lawless acts no longer. I'm sorry, they remember our sins and lawless acts no longer. Even forgive yourself because when we don't forgive ourselves, we're pretending that our opinion of what we've done wrong is more important than God's opinion of what we've done wrong. And God is the one who established what is right and what is wrong in the first place. And the writer continues, let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how we may spur one another onward toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, the end approaching. Because we can approach God in the hope and faith of eternal life, we can stop being selfish and instead do acts of love and good deeds toward one another. And we can continue to meet together and encourage one another in this. In fact, we are asked to encourage one another in doing good. And the closer we get to the end, the more we're supposed to do this. But do you remember I told you about my family and I driving down a road only to find a bridge out sign and no bridge. But the road continued on the other side of the river. For most people, this is the way to the road that the road to the end of the world has been. For centuries, people have been trying to get to New Jerusalem with Jesus. We come up with all sorts of ways to get there, in essence, drawing on the map all different ways. We argue about whether there's going to be a rapture or not, whether the rapture is going to happen before the seven years of tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation or after the tribulation. And some people say that the tribulation has already happened because it was what the Jews endured during World War II or maybe under Emperor Nero. And so we try to draw out this map to get us to New Jerusalem and figure out the way to New Jerusalem by ourselves, how things are going to happen. And then a bus hits us as we cross the road. COVID comes, and we end up on a ventilator. 
We have a heart attack. We're diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And we see that sign ahead. Bridge out. And after our drive down the road of life, after it stops, we realize that we were always, already headed to New Jerusalem with Jesus or we were going to fall over that sudden drop-off because we weren't following Jesus. It had nothing to do with the maps we made on how to get to New Jerusalem. Only Jesus was important. How the end times happen is not important. What is important is whether or not you've decided to follow Jesus, our great high priest. For Jesus knows the way to New Jerusalem, whether the bridge is there or the bridge is not there. Following him will get us there, but only Jesus knows. As the writer of Hebrews says, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Take the trip. Find New Jerusalem. But you get there by following Jesus, for he's the only way to go there. Amen.